0: Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 24, a discussion with retired Captain Richard Giroux. you with Captain Giroux, sir. Uh, what would you say were two or three highlights that stand out to you now from your time in the Navy? Moments that, um, that you look back on with fondness, either with, uh, with a professional accomplishment or just personal meaning? Earlier in my career, one of my mentors when I was at the Naval Academy was Captain Rick Stevens. He was the superintendent's uh, staff advocate. I was a commandant's staff advocate. Captain Stevens relied on me to get these records prepared in a way that once they got to him, you know, the superintendent could you know, take action, you know, based on the strength of the record. And he said uh, something that I, it st- has stuck with me. He says, if the process is good, the result is good. And I have tried to repeat that phrase you know, with a bullhorn in every location since that time, is that, you know, as attorneys, we don't control the facts ultimately. We don't control the outcome. But we do control the process. You know, we can make the process, we can ensure that the process is good. We can, you know, if there's an existing process, we can follow it. If there isn't one, we can create meets the, the general idea of sort of administrative due process. I derived my greatest satisfaction as an attorney, a Navy attorney, when I could sort of come up with a creative legal solution that would help the Navy get to somewhere that it really hadn't been before. Um, And and sometimes the, the matter that it involved wasn't sort of big in the sense of, you know, it would be something that everybody recognizes like, very important to the Navy. It might be a, a relatively small matter, but yet it required maybe a lot of thought and sort of deliberate planning and, and legal thought, you know, to get there. Um, you know, one example was um, when I was the attorney for the Chief of Naval Personnel, and I, I really liked that job because I really got to be involved in policy. The things that the Navy needed to do, in a large part, dealt with sort of the people of the Navy, getting the right people, retaining the right people, training them, um, and then also maybe getting them out of the Navy, right? Uh, Maybe not the right people or people when it's their time to go for whatever reason. And, um, you know, one would think that they're... After all of these years, you know all of the good ideas sort of have been played out and been incorporated in the Milkers man and things like that. And, and the answer was no. I mean, there was still a lot of room for someone to be a good attorney and also sort of a good strategist, if you will, would understand sort of the policy needs of the Navy and, and put the two together to sort of craft policy that would be legally defensible and drive the Navy in the direction it needed to go. Now sometimes it was, you know, proposing or, or helping draft legislation with an understanding of sort of the legislative framework that had all uh, that already existed. And so one of the things that I was proud of was the Career Intermission Program. It was uh, it was a challenging task. I mean there was a strategic vision related to wanting to retain primarily female officers in the Navy. You know, you, it was relatively easy to recruit females through the officer accessions pipelines, whether it be the Naval Academy or other means, you know, ROTC, but the problem was, was retention. And they would get sort of done with their first tour, their first obligation. They'd be sort of in their prime childbearing years You know, a lot of them by that time would have gotten married, many of them to naval officers. And then they wanted to start a family. And it just, you know, the, the needs of, you know, being a surface warfare officer and going to sea, you know, as a division officer, having a shore tour, and then having a department head tour was just sort of inconsistent with that. And as much as the Navy kind of wanted to boost recruiting, of female officers, um, it recognized if it didn't fix the retention problem, it would just be digging itself in a deeper hole, right? And so the thought was, well, maybe we can create sort of an off-ramp where people can get more time to you know, start a family or maybe do something else, you know? And so sort of in the brainstorming there, we came up with this idea of, you know, career intermission. I don't know who came up with the term. But, you know, there was a lot of sort of questions about whether we could do this. How would we be able to execute this? And so one of the things that we came up against, of course, was Dharma. You know, where you come in at a year group and you... Um, you're kind of synced in there for promotion purposes and it was kind of up or out. And that was, you know, a law that applied to all of the, of the armed services. And the question is, could we come up with an off-ramp, right, that would somehow sidestep DOTMA requirements? So what's DATMA? Uh, it's the Defense Officer Program Management, Management Act. Okay. okay. And they also have a RACMA, which is the Reserve Officer Program Management Act. And, you know, among, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a framework you know, that requires, for example, the control grades um, within all the services from 4 and above. Controlling the numbers is a percentage of the overall sort of officer population. Uh, it requires, you know, three years in grade before someone is statutorily eligible for promotion to the next grade things like that, and, uh, and it also governs the selection process. Um, and so, we said, okay, well, you know, we can't, if we let somebody out of the Navy, I mean, we certainly can let, put some, we could put somebody into the reserves, we could do that. And then we thought, okay, maybe we can try to recall them somehow, but then what's the effect going to be when they go to the board? They probably aren't going to be treated very well. And they said, well, why don't we just reset them, you know, basically knock them back several year groups, sort of, and then have them sort of restart wherever they left off. So that from, from the view of the board, when they're looking at their peers, right, they would have the same amount of sort of active service time in those different billets as anybody else in front of the board so that was challenging. We had to sort of create a statutory off-ramp and on-ramp through DACMA. And then we had to sort of carefully, I I was lucky enough to have a civilian, Jim Morgan, who was an attorney working for me. He was unique, I think, among all the services that he he had an expertise in drafting legislation. And I tapped into him and, you know, we discussed a number of things and we came up with a, a framework for it. And uh, it got placed in as a pilot program for the Navy, inserted into an NDAA, I can't remember the year, and hence the career intermission program was born. Now, about that time, the economy tanked, and not as many people sort of subscribed to it as we would have liked. But I thought, you know, whether or not that ultimately helped the Navy or not, to me, it was very fulfilling to creatively do something like that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it wasn't just for people to have children. They could do anything almost that they wanted. They could care for an alien parent. They could go pursue education that the Navy itself may have not funded, you know, but you needed a chunk of time to go pursue education. And you might even be able to you know, do uh, you know some surfing world tour or something. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know. Or hike the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, uh, you know, ultimately what all, what all pe- the people who signed up for that chose to do with it, but. I was very, very happy, uh, to have been involved in that chief of nail personnel. I think that was probably the most policy heavy job that I had that allowed me to act as a creative lawyer. Uh, we had a situation where, you know, CNO, I think it was Mullins at the time. You know, this is the, it's the folklore is that he was sitting around in his, sort of like, morning staff meeting or whatever with all of his sort of personal staff and, you know, in his CNO and, um, uh, and he looks around and he sees a bunch of white guys, right? And he says, look, he says, this this can't perpetuate, right? He says, if the Navy is going to succeed, we are going to have to draw from all parts of society, from all you know, ethnic. He wanted to sort of aggressively go out and do what we could to bring in minorities and stuff like that into the officer corps of the Navy. And so that was handed off to OPNAV N1, Chief Naval Personnel, dual headings. Admiral Hardy. And so we wanted to go out and aggressively do targeted recruiting. And we also wanted to do, um, we wanted to, to sort of look at the whole person standard and, and, and see whether we could look at race or an ethnicity in the whole person standard for purposes of the sessions and in the officer programs. And so, anyway, there was this case out there, Grutter v. Michigan, uh, where there was dicta in that case that suggested that that the, the military could do something like this, right? And and so I said, Hey, you know, if you want to do this, you know, this dicta gives you, you know, a legally defensible way to do it. So, you know, so ultimately if it's challenged, I don't know what you win. But you can certainly go on with a straight face and say, we believe that we're doing this Constitution. And so I worked to carefully craft precept language for the accession boards for the ROTC programs. I, I didn't get involved with the Naval Academy, although I was, you know, I, they were so insular, right? But I, also, but I was in heavy communication with them, you know, based on what we were doing, and so that we'd sort of be aligned. Um, but we were also looking at, you know, what, what's, you know, we, we did the three-part test, right? And I said, okay, what, what's the likelihood that there's going to be a plaintiff? I said, there could be. You know, someone's denied a ROTC scholarship, maybe, that they wanted to get. And, um, you know, and then they'd sue the Navy or something like that. You know, what's the likelihood would prevail? I said, I don't really know, but we do have this language here. At least the Navy, you know, went, went you know. Win or lose, you know, it makes a statement that the Navy is committed to do this, right? And, and, you know, and and I can, and what also for me as an attorney, you know, whose ultimate client is the Department of the Navy, right, is, you know, I can interpret my superior's direction in a way that is lawful, right? And if they went and told me to, you know, do something else, I might not have been able to help them do that, right? Right. Um, and then finally, what, what's the measure of damage? And I said, well, you know, the measure of damage is probably you might have to pay some attorney's fees, but you just offer the guy a scholarship, right? It's not, You don't bust a board. You know, I said, hey, I, I don't don't touch the boards. But at least in a session programs, uh, you know, some opportunity, you know, based on the law that was, was you know, the jurisprudence to do something. So we did it. And we weren't we weren't doing we didn't hide behind it. And I had people calling me up saying, You're making a mistake, you're making a mistake, you know. And you know, and, and I will tell you, the law has evolved since that time that, that maybe now it's not constitutional to do something like that, to even consider race at all, among many factors. You know, that Grutter was wrongly decided, or at least you know, maybe it was rightly decided at the time, now it's wrongly decided. I don't know. But you know, I You know, my my boss wanted to do something. And I got him the ability to do it. Roll in the Kosovo campaign. Interesting. Um, I was, uh, Sixth Fleet headquarters at the time was up in Gaeta. And I was down in Naples. And uh, there was only one attorney at Sixth Fleet in 05. And it was uh, Dave Hayes at the time. Before was, that was, was Hal Draunberg. And, um, you know, we had submarine operations that were related to the Coastal Campaign, but the reality is it wasn't a maritime campaign, right? We had like this, so we had this allied force, you know, we had like ships from all the NATO countries that wanted to contribute a ship. They had created some kind of squadron or something like that that was patrolling the Adriatic to, you know, they were concerned about it you know, like refugees, and terrorists, and stuff like that. So, um, and then there were submarines there and, and we were concerned like the, the Serbian Navy had like a couple of submarines. Only one of them I think was operational, it's called the Sava and it was a diesel electric. And our biggest concern was this thing could somehow slip out of port and, they're you know, very quiet and the Adriatic's not very large and they could very easily just sort of like create havoc. I mean, they wouldn't even need to attack anyone. The mere fact that they were there would mean that all these other navies would probably like, you know, move their ships way off. The ROE was pretty restrictive, right? And but we were concerned that if if the submarine came out, there was going to be a period right at the opening of the harbor where we had a chance to engage them. But once that once if we didn't have that, then we would lose the tactical advantage. And we might not find them. And so we wanted an ROE that was robust enough that would allow the, the CO, who was there, discretion to, to if, he, if he thought he was losing tactical advantage, to sink that submarine before it got out of port. And the current ROE didn't allow for that. And we had to craft language that was that allowed the possibility of that decision to be made and then sell it up. And we were able to do that. So uh, that was my contribution. Uh, Also, I I got wrapped up because he didn't have an assistant, right? So he kind of called on me to be like his assistant fleet judge advocate. So I ended up doing a lot of ROE work for non-submarine related stuff. Um, You know, I remember like... You know, he had to get like, and the Marines were going to go into Kosovo and they were going to have like these ROE that they would tape to their wrists, right? It was like, you know, written in crayon, you know? And and they needed to get that like translated to them or something. And so he sent it to me and I had a conduit to get it to them like in Macedonia or something. You were the EXO at the trial service office specifically when we transitioned to the RILSO offices. Uh, What were some of the unforeseen consequences of regionalization? Our biggest concern was you know, sort of preserving the equities of, well, there were the people that worked for the installation, right, the legal offices for the installation. They would no longer be working for the installation, right? They would be part of the RILSO and they'd be from in the installations. But there was some concern that, that the supported commands would not like that, that they want their own attorney to be their own attorney and not, you know, undercut them or something like that in Wilson. And, and we thought that that might be a problem, but we also, more realistically, we had problems you know, sort of just meshing in all the civilian employees and things like that. And given that there was a relatively small sort of footprint there in Hawaii relative to other regions, it wasn't as big of a deal. Um, the, yeah, I remember helping design the logo <laughs> for the Rilso. And I had just come from Pac fleet headquarters and they had like a graphic shop down there. Right. I knew that. So I said, Hey, let's get Cause we had a pretty cheesy logo before it's the TSO. So it's like you know, some palm tree number one or something. So we got to come up with something different. So we went down there and I, and there was like a, I think he was like a senior chief, but he was like a graphic artist and he just said, Oh, I love this kind of stuff. And you know, he was you know, and he, you know, we, so I sat down with a design session with him. And said, "Hey, here's some you know ideas." And and then he comes back and says, "Hey, you know, I've got this design with like a Hawaiian warrior on one side, and I've got like the scale, the lady holding Lady Justice or whatever Justitia holding the scales of justice, blindfolded on the other side, and a sword and a club and a and it was really cool. And there was like the the Arizona Memorial in the background and the Battleship Missouri, and you know." I was just like cool. I said this is the coolest thing ever. It says we need like some logo, right? But this is not gonna make it in Latin, we need to make it in Hawaiian, right? And so uh, so anyway, I remember the logo the the the, the motto of the command in um, from TSO in Naples was Strong Towards the Truth or something like that. And I always thought that was a good good logo, right? Or a good motto. So I, I said to Captain Boone, I said, I think this ought to be our model, but should be in Hawaiian, right? Um, so so I had to go and talk, call the state of Hawaii and find out, like, an official Hawaiian translator, right, that they had employed, Because we didn't have anybody in the Navy, right? We'd be about to speak Hawaiian. And the worst possible thing would be we would write something that would be, like, offensive in Hawaiian, right? And then it would be, you know, the joke would have been lost, right? After we printed all of the... Thing. So, yeah, so we finally got a hold of somebody, and and, and she said, well, I can't really translate directly, but I said, we, we can do this. She says, we can say, stand firm in the truth. So that became the motto, and they translated into Hawaiian. I took that translation and found somebody else to verify it for me, and that was it. The it, it. it was cool. And that's still the logo today. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I remember that's that story. Right. Yeah, so now you know how it came about. <laughs> so uh, that was fun. Yeah. Don't ask, don't tell. And Secretary Gates, this was his brilliance actually. Is he realized that if if the way he set this up was just to go to the services and say, Hey, you think this is a good idea or not? You know, that he'd get all kinds of stuff coming back from that, right? And, and by the way, we knew this we knew this was coming. You know, President Obama had been elected, he had campaigned on the issue. And you know, Captain Quinn, you know, I give the most credit to him. You know, he was more foresightful than I was. But we both realized that, hey, you know, we don't want to be caught flat-footed when this does happen. So, how do we prepare our bosses in a way that that you know doesn't doesn't make the Navy get ahead of everybody else and end up sort of hurting hurting something? And so we basically kind of did some sort of it wasn't research, but we really kind of just kind of looked at the problem. And we said, okay, uh, you know, what, what what could we do? If, if, if they said to us, you know, we want to change the rule, you know, you know, change the policy, you know, what could the Navy say? We could say, no, we don't want to. We could say, um, we, we want to, we're to change it. Or we can say, you know, maybe we, can, we want to study it, right, for some period of time. And then there might have been some nuances in there, right? So so we had kind of prepped both Admiral Ferguson, the, the CNP, and also the CNO. They were well, they understood kind of where this would go. And so when it finally happened, we were sort of prepared. We had thought about it, our bosses had thought about it. And so Admiral, I had already transferred, right? Um, and I had become the chief of staff at 06. But Admiral Ferguson was still there at CNP. And, and he also had sort of indicated, look, I says, you know, if this is going to happen, I, I want to get in front of it. I don't want to react to it. I want to get in front of it so that we can shape it the way it needs to be. So they created this comprehensive review working group. And it had different sections. And it was headed by a four-star general Ham, who was, I think, uh, Army you know, uh, Ar- Army Europe or something at the time. I don't think it was a COCON, but he was the head of the Army in Europe. Um, And Jay Johnson, who was the DOD general counsel. And then they had created four different subgroups, right? And one was like training, other one was like survey, and one was like legal, and then there was policy. And Admiral Ferguson, you know, maneuvered to get himself put as the co-chair on the policy subgroup, okay? And I think there were like three co-chairs, right? One was, and I think he was the only military there. And they had others who were like uh, civilian first chief for the army and stuff like that. Um, and then he, he brought me in. He says, I want you to be my senior attorney there. So, and then they had like the legal group, but they didn't have a lot to do. I mean, my view, they, they had, you know, we knew kind of what the law was and stuff like that. You know, the reality is, was what, what should the policies be? right? And, and, and are those policies going to be sort of legally enforceable or whatever? And so, so yeah, so I was one of maybe four or five attorneys assigned to the policy group. So we had Chris Luster, she was a reservist at the time, we had Tom Posh, great attorney, 05 uh, from the Air Force, there was no six. Uh, we had uh, uh, maybe one other attorney, as I recall. And um, and we had a big brainstorming session and say, what are all the dimensions of this issue, all the policy dimensions? And in the course of maybe just a couple days, right, we had sketched out about 19 different areas where we had to take a deep policy look at how. And the way it was constructed, and this was the brilliance of Secretary Gates, he says, look, says, this is your charter. So your charter isn't whether or not to come back with it. Whether it's a good idea or not, he says, if the policy is changed to allow, you know, you know, gay and lesbian service members to serve openly, if you will, in the services, what are, what will the effects be, and whether or not, and, and what will be the, you know, the effects on readiness? I guess that would be, that was the question, and that really changed everything, right? So it wasn't our you know, we really weren't there to provide uh, an ultimate recommendation about whether the policy should be changed. But what, but if it was changed, what would be the effects and whether or not we could sort of manage, you know, whatever negative effects there were, right? That, that was the question. So um, so we looked at it and we said, okay, well, there's benefits. Big area, right? That was one of the dimensions. We had a spouse co-location. You know, co-location of you know same-sex partners. We had housing. We had uh, you know, let's uh, say housing like barracks and stuff like that, right? Quarter you know, Uh We had uh, you know, ad set policy like what would, you know, what would we need to do retroactively or whatever. We had re- you know, recruiting. We had you know, di- different things. Um, uh, and so anyway, yeah, so we, we sketched out, and it turned out to be pretty good. I mean, we ended up having maybe adding a couple more areas that weren't even related to policy. The other people saw what we were doing. They liked our framework, and they said put a few other things in there. <clears throat> and we spent the next 10 months working on it. And uh, I remember, you know, one of the things we couldn't really do uh, is we couldn't go out and survey gay and lesbian service members because policy was still in effect. So we couldn't say, hey, all you people who are gay and lesbian, come forward and want to hear your opinions about what to do, right? Uh, and so this, we weren't really the survey group, but we had to sort of incorporate some of what they were doing into what, our, what we were doing. So, and, and I was sort of like a legal advisor to them, too, a little bit, right? And so, so they said, okay, what can we do? So we can go out to these affinity groups, right, like the Gay and Lesbian Veterans Association or whatever, and we can try to use them as surrogates to try to figure out what gay and lesbian service members might feel about this new policy change. So we actually, yeah, we arranged that. I remember we had a uh, meeting in uh, it was in the Pentagon conference. Center. And we brought in these gay and lesbian groups, and there was probably four or five different ones. And it was interesting because we walk in there, you know, and I'm there. and I'm not the senior person there, but I'm the senior most attorney there. And uh, there's probably about four or five of us, right? And there's probably about 20 of them. And, um, And it was very tense. We walk in there and it was like they were prepared for, The military did a sort of stonewall on them, right? And you know, basically say, "Hey, we don't think it's a good idea. We don't care what you have to say. You know, we're just kind of being forced to meet with you." I mean, that was really kind of the sense, very defensive. And so, for the so the first few questions were sort of just very defensive that way. And so finally, I just interrupted and I said. Since I want you to understand what our charter is. says, our, our charter is not to make a recommendation to the secretary whether or not it's a good idea or not to change the policy. Our charter is that you know, if the policy is changed, what are the effects of that? And, and if there are any negative effects, you know, can we manage you know, any sort of negative impacts to readiness? And so we just want to get your ideas about things that might be related to that. And, of course, you know, one of the immediate effects, I guess positive effects, is that people who were living under the cloud of maybe being smoked out as gay and lesbian suddenly wouldn't have to worry anymore about that. You know, and so that was a significant sort of thing that we need to consider. And you could just see the tension just melt away. And, away. and suddenly it was just very, just very collaborative. Right. and In fairness, as an attorney, you know, I, I although I think that they got the right result, and I, I sense that was the way it was going to go. I was there to be an attorney. I was not going to prejudge this. I was going to do my job to to provide the information in the best way that we could, so the secretary could make an informed decision and/or recommendation. And there were some things I didn't really like. Um, We looked at the statute, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell statute, which had come into play, I guess, in 94, right? So it had gone on for 17 years at that point. And, you know, you looked at the statute, um, and there were, like, congressional findings. And as you recall, there were, you know, I I can't remember how many there were, but there were, like, 20 findings or 15. Maybe it was, like, 15 findings or something. And, you know, findings 1 through 13 were great. Because they went through and they said, hey, you know, the army's, you know, the military is not here to be a social, you know, progressive movement. You <laughs> know, we're here to like fight the battles of the country. And we need to be ready to fight the battles of the country. And, da, 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 da. and all of that stuff, I thought, that's great policy. And I said it would be really sad to repeal the statute and not at least keep those. it was, it was only the last finding that said, basically, we believe that, you know, gay and lesbian uh, is is, uh, is incompatible with, you know, you know, service in the armed forces, right? But, and so my personal feeling was, see, there were a lot of people that were involved in this. They thought it was sort of like a, you had a constitutional right to be gay and be in the military. And And, you know, whether you believe that or not, I said, you know, where does that end? I mean, I mean, the reality is is that if, let's if, let's not go to that. Let's talk about whether it's a good policy or not. I mean, maybe in the in the 17 years, some of these these factual predicates that we've been working on have changed. Maybe the society has, you know, the society is different now, you know, 17 years later than it was back in 94. And so the disruption that you might have had in 1994 by having gays and lesbians serving openly maybe was no longer an issue. And it wasn't that we needed to change the law so much as we needed to just update the facts, right? And I was kind of the voice in the wilderness there. And I, I thought the most elegant solution would have been to to, you know, sort of change the statute, but sort of try to keep that language in there, right? So anyway, um, uh, very, very proud of our effort. I think that we saw the issues coming up. We laid out the issues of benefits. We proposed some workarounds that were immediately, you know, some of them were like service, service or service member directed benefits like, you know, SGIs. We, we did a very, very thorough job there and, uh, I think the the work that we did also laid a foundation for some other issues later on, like transgender consideration of those. Um, I I was extremely proud to be involved in that. I was extremely uh, impressed with how Secretary Gates approached the problem. And I don't know whether he had prejudged what his decision would be, but here was a guy that also valued process. I mean, what we delivered was process. And in the process of studying this and talking to everybody and sending out letters to every chaplain endorsing entity out there and getting their input, is there, you know, we built a record. And, you know, I think it diffused a lot of animosity that might otherwise have been there. You know, whether, you, whether a person liked the outcome or not, I don't think anybody could fairly say that they didn't have a voice in, in the process. Um, and so I thought that was brilliant, and it was consistent with what I had understood as being important during my career. Um, So, and you know, it was fun. I was, you know, you got to be an attorney. You got to think really hard about sort of legal issues and, you know. um, Highlights of my tour at 10th Fleet. Um, You know, I always imagined myself as being, you know, hired to go into the Navy, not so much to go into the courtroom, but to be on the staff, right? Um, and so one of my disappointments, really, is I never really got to see. I guess I was on the submarine staff, you know, in Naples. I was on an operational staff, I guess, in a sense, uh, in Hawaii, although I didn't have the operational portfolio. Um, and so I'd always wanted to be, like, in a numbered fleet, like 6th Fleet or 7th Fleet, you know. I'd imagine myself there as something would be a good fit for me, right? But I never sort of you know, got the strike group job. I didn't get, you know, because of the way that they were doing the PG school and stuff like that, I never got, I had to wave off of PG school orders to the a law. It's a good story in itself. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't have the OPLA PG school P code. And so I just never got that. And so it was always kind of a disappointment to me. And so when I was in my command tour, I had maybe some choices and you know, I could maybe try to get nominated for the CNO job or I could go to a Temp Fleet. And I knew the CNO job would have maybe been more professionally career enhancing for me. It might have put me in a better position to get picked up on an AJ board or something like that. But I was more interested in doing a Tim Fleet. And the thought that it was a numbered fleet was kinda of cool. You know, so I finally got there. Um, the, uh, it, um, you know, I thought by that time they had been around by, I guess, three years. Or so. And I thought, okay, good, I'm coming in, uh, a lot of some of the issues are all resolved. Uh, you know, I can get in there and, you know, things are probably already sort of in some state of organization. That wasn't true at all. Um, you know, you had a, a staff that was trying to be an operational staff, but the people who made it up really didn't have a lot of experience in that. You had this, what they call at the time, the information downscore, they now call it information warfare community. And they had taken these uh, different groups of officers who all sort of by, what the, they all dealt with information in some way, but in different ways. I mean, you had uh, the, the information professionals, right, the IPs, who basically ran the telecommunication communications networks for the navies, you know, radios and things like that. And they, you know, they, they were, you know, pro, you know, providing assurance that the signals would get there and the, you know, the, the, uh, crypto, crypt, crypt, crypto keys or whatever the, uh, were there. And then you had like the, uh, the cryptologists, these people were gathering information, right? Signals intelligence. And then you had intelligence officers, and they were analyzing. And then you had this new group of people who were the cyber operators or whatever, and they were fighting with it. They were creating effects with information. And you kind of all throw them together. And, uh, and only of that, those groups, only the, the intelligence officers in their career paths typically had experience on staffs. The rest of them, they are all off on their own, right? It might, it might be an N6 or something on staff here with IP, but you wouldn't be working in the ops department, right? So you suddenly had these guys or the N3s. Really, it never worked in like an ops, issue. and it showed. I mean, um, so I, I've, I've been able to see in the last three years, you know, a great maturation of the staff, and now it resembles something that I remember seeing when I was at Pack Fleet. We have operational planning team meetings. We have, you know, a semblance. I mean, it used to be that I would get, people would just kind of dump a pile of paper on my desk for legal review. And there wouldn't be any sort of organization. There might be an instruction, right? So where's the prior revision? Where are the changes? So many changes, you know. There wasn't a slip like to indicate where I was in the, in the review chain before anybody else. I said. So, so that those processes were not in place when we got there, but they were put in place, and uh, so much better. Uh, we try really hard to analogize uh, what we do in uh, information warfare to other parts of you know kinetic warfare. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think one of the challenges is to just be honest and recognize that it is something different. I mean, there's really a, everyone will say, well, you know, we'll just use existing law, law of armed conflict or whatever. And say, you know, that's a good, I mean, that's, that's what you have to do as an attorney, right? You know, it's no brilliant thing to say that you have to do that. But the problem is, is that information operations allows you to do things that you could never do kinetically in phase zero and phase one. Uh, And, you know, most of what you can imagine we would do in making cyber effects is not tantamount to armed conflict. It's not use of force. It's something else. I would say that it really relates to the same kind of realm as espionage. I mean, espionage is not considered use of armed force. You know, the State Department says, well, it's a violation of sovereignty. Well, okay, but everybody does it, even if they don't talk about it, you know. And so we have to get to a place with cyber where, you know, I'm not just talking about the military, right, but sort of the nation as a whole. We can decide kind of what kinds of operations we can do and what authorities we need to do them. And we also have to accept, you know, a lot of the things that we are used to being able to have in kinetic warfare just aren't really readily available. Attribution. You're not going to see a plane flying over your head with markings saying, here we are, we are dropping a bomb on you, Right. Mm You're gonna get something through. You're not gonna know whether it's a criminal or a you know, state actor right away. I mean, attribution takes a lot of time. It takes intelligence. Um, but the effects are what the effects are, right? Um, and so I was—I've been thinking about that. and I'm saying, okay, well, what do you really know? Well, um, you do have proportionality, right? So, okay, well, if they come and you know, fry our box, you know, we shouldn't be able to launch a nuclear weapon, right? There should be some notion of proportionality. If we go back to them, we you know, to prevent what they're doing, there should be some notion of proportional response. Uh, and then also the notion of comity. You know, whatever our policy is as a nation, we just have to be satisfied that other nations are going to do it. And we can't really complain about it, right? Even if we don't like it. Right. And that's what we're struggling with right now. And it's, it's not a it's – a, it's, a, it's a national level policy struggle. Um, but, you know, as we, we get these additional incidents like Sony and OPM breaches and stuff like that, I think there's an understanding that we just can't do nothing. So why did you decide to join the JAG Corps after serving in the subsurface force? Yeah, a little, little secret here. Um, I joined the Navy relatively late. You know, even though I was a good student, I probably could have applied either for a service academy or a ROTC program. You know, my father didn't want me to join the Navy, and uh, it's a totally different story. But um, And so anyway, but, uh, you know, I was going to college and um, studying science and engineering, and... um, you know, I was working as an engineering technician at this place up in near Salt Lake City, Utah, that they built missile motors for the for the submarine launch missiles. You know, and uh, you know, it looked like um, I would be able to work there after I graduated, have a job there as as a as an engineer. But then I looked at my boss, who was you know at that point, I mean, you know, 20 years older than me. And I, and I liked my boss, and like, I liked the work well enough, but I said, this is just not where I want to be in 20 years. And so I thought about the Navy, and I said, you know, it's kind of now or never, right? And, uh, and I said, you know, okay, I'll do this. I was about 26 at the time, 25. I said, um, you, know, you know, if I if I go into the Navy and I don't like it, I'm out in four years, and I will have the satisfaction of knowing that I did it, right? And I won't have that, you know, when I'm 40 years old, I won't... Think, whoa, whoa, whoa. I done it. So anyway, so I was interested in technology and stuff, and I was kind of interested in the submarine force. I went in to try to get recruited. And they, they said, hey, you know, you, you're, you're based on the timeline stuff, you're just gonna make the miss the cutoff to get into the nuclear propulsion program based on age. You know, you'd be over 26 and a half at commissioning. And I said, Oh, that's you know, he says, but this is what we can do for you. He said, you know, if you come in under this other program, which is called engineering duty option, you, you go on a tour on the submarine, and, you know, once you get your dolphins or whatever, you prove that you're a good officer, then you can apply to get in the nuclear propulsion program, and then they'll waive your they'll waive your, uh, your age requirement, and then you'll go back to school and stuff like that. And you'll, you'll give up your short tour, right, essentially. But I said, okay, that sounds reasonable, you know. So that's what I did. So I got in, I went to OCS. Um, and when I was at OCS, uh, we were taking like these courses in like administrative law in the Navy, right? And, and, and just about administrative stuff. And they were talking about like different postgraduate programs. And they mentioned someone, the teacher, the instructor, mentioned the law education program. And that, that you could actually get funded education law. In, like my radar just went up. You know. I said, that is interesting. I said, I'd always sort of had had an idea that I wanted to be an attorney and thought, well, Jack, gee, maybe the Navy continue, you know, maybe an attorney. And so uh, so I, I got on the board the submarine, and I, I did well. I, I I um I got my some, my dolphins pretty early, I think in eleven months. it was pretty fast. It was well liked. I think I was a good officer. Uh, but I also understood that as much as I love what I was learning, there, you know, I just didn't want to make a career a person in the family. I said, you know, I, am not sure this is what I want to do. I and mean, if I don't feel very, if I, if I don't feel like I have to, you know, go to become a commanding officer of the submarine, um, and then I do I shouldn't do it. Right. I need to be driven that way. Right. Um, and so I says I, I love what I'm learning. I says you know I'm I'm learning all of these things about these systems. You know, it's kind of scary. I mean I, you know after I've been on board for two years, people start coming to me for checkouts, right? And I said, wow, I'm a person who suddenly knows more than everybody around. Me. And so I made a decision that I wasn't going to stick in the submarine force, and I was either going to go get out of the navy and go to law school on my own, or I was going to and I was going to actively pursue trying to get the law education program. I applied, and I the first year I applied, I was uh, selected as an alternate. And the guy uh, who was the recruiter running the left board says, hey, you know, it was a strong package. He says, a lot of people who apply the next year get picked up. He says, I, I recommend you apply next year. And so anyway, right then I was at like, three years right on board, and um, I had a four-year commitment. And, you know, basically I was ready for short tour, Right. And, but I said, you know what? I don't want to go to a new command and then immediately say I'm trying to become an attorney. And you know, you don't know who I am, but you need to write this wonderful endorsement for me. So I, I elected to stay on board for a fourth year, and that helped my command a lot. Um, and they appreciated. It. And, and I told them why I was doing it, and they said, well, We want to help you. And so, you know, I got, in the meantime, I got selected as J.O. of the year. And so I got like a NAM for that. I had done some other things that kind of buffed my resume up, you know. And so I applied, and I got picked up on the second look. And um, and then, uh, you know, then the Civil War, are they going to let you loose, you know? I mean, is the serving Force going to let you go, right? And they still needed department heads, even ones like me, right? And, uh, and so as it turns out, the Cold War ended and peace was breaking out everywhere and they were decommissioning submarines right and left. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so I was able to get out. Did you have any particularly difficult or challenging assignments? Uh, I went directly to Rota Spain, my first tour. You know, as exciting as it was to go overseas as a first tour to Judge It was probably the wrong thing. Um, I'm I'm a firm believer in the FTGA program. Uh, You know, I had a lot of Navy experience that was very useful. I had a lot of common sense and all that other stuff, but I wasn't, I just didn't have a lot of experience as an attorney, and in that situation, here I was at a detachment. You know, back in the day, your defense and trial were all put together in the Naval Legal Service Office, and the headquarters was in Naples. And we had a detachment there, and it was run, run by an 05. And, you know, basically it was like, well, here's your case, you're a defense counsel. Well, I need to talk to somebody about how to be a defense counsel. Well, I'm sorry I can't talk to you, because I can't take sides in the case, because I'm a detailer. You know, so I was just kind of like, out there by myself, you know, with, with some skill and, and, you know, there were, there was probably another attorney there that was the defense counsel and was helpful, you know, but the reality is I just didn't have a good sort of onboarding program to help me learn how to be a good attorney. And I think that I don't know that my, you know, I don't think that innocent clients were found guilty, but I also realized I probably didn't help my clients as much as I could have. And I, I deeply regret that to this day. I mean, there were some smart things I did. There were some things that I was able to do based on, you know, sort of my general ability to do sort of good legal thinking, right? You know, winning emotions practice and things like that. But I certainly didn't have any courtroom advocacy skills. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that was wrong. I, I, I am very, I was very, very thankful when they created the FTJ program. I think that's the way to go. Jack Core has changed, in my view, tremendously for the positive over the course of my career. Um, when I first got in, you, you had the sense, and I don't know if it was true or not, but you certainly had the sense that, that, you know, the senior leadership and the JAG Corps was kind of like a, a good old boy network. Um, you know, they like like the a for example. They weren't selected by boards; they were selected by the JAG. You know, I don't know what went into all those selections, but it might be, hey, I like this guy; we're friends; grew You know, and you know, it's not that it created animosity, but it just wasn't quite sort of as professional as you thought it should be wasn't a good process. Yeah, there wasn't a good process. And, and so you see sort of across the board where they've t- had like a very informal type of sort of JAG Corps and it's been formalized in, in positive ways. Um, we, you know, I think that the First Tour Judge Advocate program was a tremendous change. Um, you know, the first thing I, I mean, literally, I think like the, the second day I was on the submarine, he handed me a qualification card. They said, here, this is what you need to learn. And I learned something about every system on that submarine. And whether I actually became the person as the division officer over that system or not, it helped me. And I'm happy that the JAG Corps is sort of in that. Now. Whether you picked up experience in the JAG Corps when I first got in was haphazard. It was whether you, where, where was your first tour? Was it okay? Was it at a fleet concentration area? Okay. You know, you, you know, it was all happenstance. Whether you went to defense or, or trial. Or, um, and you had people who were very motivated and sort of could maneuver themselves into positions where they would sort of rapidly But you had other people maybe who were just, you know, probably good attorneys, but they just weren't sort of as aggressive or outgoing in that way and maybe just didn't develop as much as they should have. Um, And I think that's changed now. I think actually the main thing that has changed is strategic planning. Okay, when I got into the JAG Corps, they had some strategic planning. I was like, you got it and you said, Okay, it sounds like somebody just sat down and thought and they wrote this thing and said, oh, great, you know, let's make a slogan out of it. And, and, um, and then there was really nothing more that you said about it, right? It was like, okay, five years now has passed. Okay, let's make another one, right? I and mean, there was no connection between strategy and, and, and what we were doing sort of day to day, right? And so I thought, like, when they, when they stood up SASC, that was the beginning. You know, and in fact, it wasn't called SASC back then, it was called Transformation or something. Uh, but, you know, other organizations, they had sort of a strategic planning cell, right? And from there, then you had sort of the JAG 2020, which would have been kind of, you know, I, I mean, I read JAG 2020, it's okay. What else are you going to like, you know? Um, but what we did, though, is we had the yearly sort of objectives that would lead us to that. That was the difference. And we got the Council of Captains engaged. And I always thought that that was the way to do it. And I was very, very happy to be involved in that process as the 06 and Chief of Staff for the 06 um, and was a commanding officer. Um, it, you know, we've done lots of good things that has originated from ideas presented by senior leadership, not the flags, not the people, the personal circle surrounding the flags like at OJ headquarters, but actually like the senior leadership, the O6s, the senior enlisted and also senior civilians now from all parts of Jagdom have contributed, and I think it's great. And they've got sort of these four different areas where you've got recruit and retain and, you know, these other things. And I think it's great. I think it's it's a process that keeps on providing dividends. You know, things like, because once you have that process and you say, okay, how can we make recruiting better? And so what do you get out of it? You get structured interviews. Once again, there was an area where it was just, you know, you know, it was kind of happenstance about how you got your package together into the JAG Corps. And there just wasn't, you know, some people would have an interview with a senior officer who was you know, maybe more respected or something like that, or who would write better than someone else. And they could be really the same level of candidate, but one person sort of gets an advantage and the other person doesn't. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, and so we have structured interview. I and mean, you can argue that there's not a lot of science that shows that structured interview is, you know, compelling, but it's certainly better than what we had, Right. And it's like, and, you know, and I find it it'd be useful. I, I, I think there are situations now we have less bad fits in the Jag core And so the structured interview, I, I thought wasn't necessarily to identify the best candidates, but was to weed out the ones who were bad fits, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, you know, you get the point total, right? And when I was looking at the session board, I'd say, okay, look, I don't really don't care if this guy's got 30 points. What I, what I don't want is I don't want someone who has 15 points, right? You know, I can't tell you whether the guy who's got 30 points is that much better than the person who got 20 points. But I can definitely tell you that the guy who's got 15 points or less, or even 20 points or less, is probably not, you know, you know, you know, a good fit for the, the Jag Corp. Um, so, I, you know, I'm very, very happy. I think, you know, Admiral Hawk, I think he started out in transformation and became the JAG and implemented it. I think that that's brilliant. I think the JAG Corps has always been nimble, small, filled with lots of smart people who understand sort of how to maneuver and regulations and policy and stuff like that. And so we we've always been sort of traditionally, and I know this from, from talk within the chief nail personnel, we're probably the best, you know, despite some occasional problems, we are the best managed officer community in the Navy. You know, our detailing is done relative to the other communities. It's done more retail than it is wholesale. Uh, and, and we also agonize about it, you know, still, I mean, and I think there's still room to improve the fairness and the detailing process, but I think we're much better than the other communities. We should give ourselves credit for that. Um, but we now have a process to keep on looking at that, right? You know, and the, the idea of, hey, before we're going to let you compete for a billet, you've got to write up a billet description of your own billet and get that in the billet bank so that everybody has a chance to look at it and say, this is what, you know, Some good ideas, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, if anything sort of bothers me is where you you have sort of this notion that an attorney is just sort of like a, uh, you know, some kind of a cog in the machine, right? Well, well, they just find the law and then they just apply the law. No. If that were it, you wouldn't need attorneys. Reality is you need attorneys because sometimes the law is unclear or the law is not well-formed to the set of facts that you have, right, and then you got to figure out how to make it fit some, in, or choose among different laws, maybe to, to do it, or make new law. Sometimes, you know, in the administrative realm, you can do that sometimes, right? If you have plenary authority at the secretary level, you know, you have to break some new trails sometimes. Um, but then you have to figure out, okay, how do you do it so that you can limit it to that set of facts and not have, you know, sort of these perverse uh, outcomes you know, based on other people trying to use that same rule. But I I consider myself very lucky. My career could have been very different. It's possible, you know, just because of timing and whatnot that I could have either remained in the submarine force, maybe, or gotten out of the Navy and gotten into the private sector. Maybe I would have been in the reserves, but maybe not as an attorney, right? So Mm -hmm. one of my regrets, I suppose, is that I, I'm just a very introverted person and it's hard for me. I don't have a posse of friends that I keep close contact with. So if I lose contact with a a colleague in the JAG Corps, I don't want them to perceive that negatively. It's really just sort of a function of, of my modesty and introverted nature that I don't keep up those contacts. You know, it's always been sad leaving a place, but it's always just been very, very exciting going to, going to that next place. You know, leave in transit is the most beautiful thing in the Navy. Your only, your only job, your only duty in the Navy is to show up at the next duty station you can prescribe time for it. um, And it's just been exciting. And I could change my career every few years. Mm-hmm. The thought of being in a place for 20 years and moving my inbox to the same outbox, oh, my gosh, I just don't think I could have done it. Jag course, you know, the, the geographic moves, all that stuff. That's why I love being in the Navy. That's why I love being in the Navy Jag Corps. And, you know, I don't think the Jag Corps should run away from it and try to make it easier for people not to do that. I think they should try to find people who can embrace that. You have been listening to Jag Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy Jag community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.